Hello, ladies and gentlemen. The NFL season is officially upon us. Had to bring my extra bling today because, you know, it's that it's that week of the year. That being said, welcome to the MSP Initiative. MSP Talk uh, today is September 12th, 2023, and we're going to get some housekeeping out of the way, and then we're going to get into the good stuff. MSPinitiative.com. This is where everything that we do here at MSP Initiative, once you learn how to spell the word initiative, is set. So if you go under sessions, this very session that we are on is being recorded and it will be posted here in both podcasts and video format. So you could go backwards and rewind. Uh, thanks for everyone that came out to Community Minds in Denver. We are officially going to be planning some upcoming Community Minds in 2024. Um, so stay tuned on, uh, on that a little bit closer towards the end of the year. Uh, but we really thought that this was a really cool format that changed the vibe of I don't know, every single channel event it seems like you've ever gone to, but I digress. Upcoming and shortly uh, between now and then the year, we have two more, and they're the biggest ones, block parties or after parties. So the first one is at Datocon slash Kaseacon slash Autotask Community Live. They resurrected, I think. It's a little bit of everything. Uh, so on uh, October 3rd, 2023, uh, starting at 10 p.m., we will be at the Hard Rock Cafe right down the water from the Intercontinental Hotel in Miami, and uh, you will um, you will find us opening uh, multiple venues, including the Hard Rock, for a uh, after party slash block party. If you're an MSP, you happen to be in South Florida, you want to stop by, no problem. So uh, you can register ahead of time uh, on this page. I really recommend that you do that so that you don't have to wait in line. Lastly is the MSP Community Block Party in Orlando at IT Nation. This one will be on November 8th, 9 p.m. Uh, on International Drive, you, there's a Ferris wheel, can't miss it. Uh, that is called Icon Park. We'll be taking over half of Icon Park putting some venues together, doing a live concert for the MSP community, which we did last year with the All-American Rejects. This year, there might be not one, not two, but maybe three 90s recognizable bands you would have heard on the radio. So that's going to be really cool. 100% free as well. Definitely should register ahead of time. Definitely encouraged to uh, be proactive there. We have some community offers from companies in the sandbox that are just trying to hook you up. Check those out. And lastly, our industry calendar, which keep on getting asked from every which way. Hey, do you have 2024 up yet? We're going to start. We're starting to work on it, right? People are starting to send all these dates and things coming through. I believe somebody said this past year in 20, even though 2023 is not finished yet, um, or something like 230 events just in the U.S. alone. Sorry for our friends in the North. I know you guys have events over in Canada. And then, of course, you know, down in Australia, New Zealand, and all sorts of Europe events. And, you know, we'll eventually, like, categorize these. But here, just in the U.S., there was 230-plus events, which means if you really wanted to be on the road, every probably could. That being said, we'll update our community calendar so that you know what's coming up in 2024. All right, that is all the housekeeping. I know that was a lot, but it's effectively everything that we try and help out with. Now you know, and today's guest of the podcast has never been on before. So this is the first time. So buckle up, should be interesting. We have Melissa Hockenberry. How are you doing today, Melissa? I'm good, George. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. No, happy, uh, happy you were able to join us. You know, I always love to start these off with, you know, like everybody's background, right? I mean, like, 
it's very interesting where people come from, how they kind of transited through like what I like to call MSP, the sandbox land, you know, like, you know, everybody seems to sometimes play fun in the sandbox, sometimes not. Uh, but it's just always interesting, right? How did you, how did you kind of get started? What was your journey through? And then we kind of get to the present day and we talk about like what you're up to now. So, you know, nothing that you shouldn't already know, but uh, I'll let you, uh, I'll let you give us a little bit of history. Sure. Um, hopefully my internet will hold on for the history because it's, it's telling me it's unstable. So we'll try this. But <laughs> so I started out kind of very unique for most people in the industry. I started out in retail. So I did uh, graduated from college with an undergraduate in marketing and did retail for six years, which I think everyone should do retail or food service. And before then, once you've done one of those two things, you're you're good to go at a, at a, a small startup in Pittsburgh. And then I moved to upstate New York and uh, I actually did the nonprofit work up there and got connected with a little company called Autotask, um, which some people may know on the on the on the call um, in 2004. So I was actually the very first person ever hired to fully support the product. I was the first product support rep for Autotask and uh, got to grow with that company, got to sit with the developers. People used to always say, I'm surprised you know so much about the code. And I'm like, I sat beside them when something went wrong. <laughs> and we looked at the code together and they explained to me and they helped me and they you know, um, provided me that opportunity. So I came in you know, with a background of marketing and retail and uh, but had definitely done customer support and experienced things and had a good understanding of how to explain complex things. And so jumped on and loved it. And I was a couple years into it and probably one of the first people in tech that jumped out and said, yeah, I'm, I'm moving. And Autotask was amazing at the time. They're like, you have tons of knowledge. We don't want to lose you. So how about if you stay on and become a remote employee? It was a crazy thing in 2006. And so I worked remotely for them. Yeah. <laughs> That's a very rare, rare finding then. Um, then I went into implementation. And so a lot of met a lot of MSPs through becoming their implementation manager, moved from you know troubleshooting the software to the first step in implementing things and uh, helping them get started. So implemented probably over 250 people and then moved into a customer experience director role and retention. That's the era of my life I like to call chasing the hearse. Um, it's just a phrase that seemed to work. So I interviewed every single customer that wanted to leave Autotask. Um, if you ever want a depressing but incredibly powerful job, you should interview your customers who want to leave you. Actually, you should hire someone to do it because you get a lot more honest. If you're not the CEO, you get a lot more honest feedback, but did all of those for several years and learned a lot. Autotask changed direction a bit, and I actually was offered like was told, hey, you can you can run away or you could stay here and do this product support thing for a little while and see what see what plays out. I was working remotely from a very remote place in the middle of the time decided it for me. She said, Mom, you couldn't leave. You love your customers too much. So we went, yeah, we're going to stick it out. So I stuck it out for a while and then was hired on as the training manager, training program manager. So I built the Autotask training program. Um, I wouldn't say totally from scratch. We had a little bit before that, but I was the first person to ever focus 
on training the Autotask product at Autotask. And that moved into a bigger training team and then taking on the community. So the physical online community, I also uh, launched, did the rebirth of that in 2018. And the two years later, the rebirth of the data Autotask community <laughs> in 2020, because we just bought a platform and data and Autotask merged. And then uh, we, we kept it for two years and then brought Datto into the Autotask platform. So that's a long explanation, but 18 years, 18, 19 years is a long time. So that's, that's kind of how I got where I am today. And so now I'm, I'm went out on my own last, sort of left for some time to reflect and, and launched in February uh, my training and consulting company to help MSPs really focus on customer experience and put the dots together. Sorry, I'm not. No, I'm muted. That was my fault. I was going to say, that was quite the journey there. Um, and quite frankly, a, a long one, right? Across a lot of different chairs inside of Autodesk and then Datto. Um, so you really got to see this thing from a lot of different angles, let's be honest. And, um, you know, it's really interesting, you know, when I think about it, right? Like, can you take... The, the software and SaaS company principles, you know, of a company that sells to MSPs and apply them to the MSP talking to their own end customer. I probably for a lot of it, the answer is yes, but I'm sure there's differences, right? And we'll, I'm sure we'll key into those in a second. I'm curious, you know, through your entire Autotask journey, I mean, obviously, I'm, you know, I'm sure somewhere in your mind, there was the before we took outside money and after they took outside money, you know, kind of timeframes, right? And I'm not trying to have a revisionist history by any means, but I would say that the MSPs in the sandbox always say that, hey, you know, once people bring in an outside, you know, whatever, PE, VC, whatever, an investor of some sort, they seem to like maybe stop worrying about what the MSP is actually saying, and they just concentrate on selling more of it. Do you find that that's true? Or is that uh, far-fetched? In my experience, I didn't see that. However, when I joined with Autotask, I was part of five people they joined with the first angel investment, and that was 2004. So there was very little time where there wasn't at least someone cussed acquisition to say I was only there for a few a few months mm -hmm. um, and the records show I was actually leaving before that acquisition happened because that seems too crazy that oh well, all of a sudden and then Melissa I decided in August of 21 that I was I was going to be on, on my way out um, other things just confirmed but um, I would say there are times where that definitely does happen um, in my experience from my side of things uh, I had a very customer-centric view. I did at one point work in the sales org, um, you know, as an account underneath account management when I was doing the customer retention and experience. Um, and so I did see a little bit of that. I'm sure that there's always a bit of that driver, right? No one invests without looking for a return. <laughs> um, however, I felt that's why I stay. Yeah, that's why I could stay as long as I could because I did feel there were really good people advocating for the customer inside of the process. Um, and I could not, I could not have been with a company 18 years and 18 years is astronomically long, but I always like to put it in the form that I change jobs every two years and eight of my 10 jobs I had, no one had ever done before. 
So it was quite the adventure. So, you know, 18 years seems like, wow, you just sort of sit somewhere. And I'm like, no, nope. <laughs> I didn't feel like I was sitting, resting on my laurels at all during those 18 years. But what I can say is that um, as things evolved and as people would become less and less focused on the customer, that's always something that is against my ethos. Like I have to focus on the customer first. That's why that's what the whole purpose of my company is. Um, I just think there's no sense in being in business if you don't legitimately want to help the people that you're trying to sell to. Um, so, that's so fair. I didn't see that, but I, I probably wasn't George necessarily on the inner workings of the drivers. I heard the KPIs. I heard my, you know, my results, but I would see people continue to invest in things that did make our customers' life easier. And that's why I think I could stay as long as I did. No, that's fair. I mean, listen, there, you know, you're hundred percent accurate that like the median like job length now in at least in the US in the last, I don't know, 25 years is like two two and a half years, something like that. Um, so like you reinvented, you know, what you did <laughs> through your journey, which is by the way. Some people are really good, create, you know, starting in a basically zero, right? I have nothing. I'm basically starting something from from the ground up, and like, you know, they're kind of just self starters. They're really organized. They they know where they're wanting to go, and they just run with it. And there's other people who absolutely cannot do that, right? Like they need to go into a structured environment that's already functioning, and then they're just like keeping the wheel spinning. Um, I, you know, it's it's always interesting whether you have the autonomy and the resources to do that, right? Like a lot of people struggle to try and create new things when, you know, there's not enough, you know, either money or time or people in order to create new departments effectively. Um, so, so I'm curious, you know, and maybe we'll learn a little bit about this during this call, how easy that is. And I guess the bigger the company, the harder, so I don't know, maybe the red tape thing's not for real. Actually, I think um, the smaller the company, sometimes the harder it is. So I'm, I'm working with a client where they're, they sort of started a new position and the tendency in new positions is, okay, well, we're going to give you like four weeks to prove that this way that we're doing this right works. And it's like, no, you can't do that. Now in a big company, if they start a new position, there's the red tape of having to get a job description and, and a, you know, a salary range. And a, all those things are actually really important in giving the success of somebody to, you know, to perform well. So if you're like, you need to create this beautiful dress, but hey, there's no pattern, just look at it and see, you know, and maybe actually we're going to only veil part of it. You're only going to see part of the dress. <laughs> That's what I see so many small companies do. So for me, yeah, that it was hundred percent that, and I had to sort of stand my ground, my little, you know, my, my 50% Italian had to come out and be a little spicy at times and be like, no, we can't change this yet. <laughs> you know, we have to be able to stay the course and, and at least look at this one thing and try to do it. Now, my brain naturally works in 75 directions, which is good and bad, depending on where, you know, where I am. So could I pivot when I felt like it or add something new? Yes. But one of the things I think small businesses and, you know, I've seen MSPs do it wrong is how many MSPs hire their first salesperson. It doesn't work out. Uh, how about 99%? And their second and their third. <laughs> 
<laughs> exactly. And I want to say to them, how much your sales process has been dumped out of your head? Did you give the person a job description? Do they have the tools they need? So I think it's a lot harder for small companies to do that well, because there's a lot of stuff that they don't always do well required behind that documentation, clear goals, staying the course, because they're used to their critical success is being able to pivot. But when you're dealing with human beings learning something, you can't keep pivoting. Um, so that was just my experience. And luckily I had early on, I had some good successes and those successes and what I was doing gave me the autonomy to be like, okay, just she'll do it. Just let her go. <laughs> and that, you know, but, but sometimes you put a young person in a young role and it's disastrous and nobody knows why. And it's, there's just too much that's not defined in my opinion. Okay. That takes me to the next question, which yeah, I'm not trying to, you know, target any age group here, but like the concept that the younger people that are coming up, right? You want to call them Gen Z and the back end of millennials and whatever label you want to use, right? Like they tend to not be consistent enough in what they're doing or have the interest to get their hands dirty to take something from zero to functional. And so you know, like, I don't know whether it's an attention span thing or just the lack of willingness to actually do something hard. But generally speaking, when you're creating something, you know, net new, um, there's a lot of things that need to be answered. There's a lot of research that needs to be done. There's a lot of structure that needs to be created. And do you find with some of the people that you've been working with in your company um, that that applies differently to, you know, maybe you know, older people in the job force, you know, are a little bit more, you know, resilient to get through a process, even though it might be, you know, bumpy, where more the younger people coming through are just like, not too hard, got to go do something else now. Yeah, so I think, um, I do think you find that there's good and bads to both of those ages in this exact situation, right? So, so the older people will stay a course longer, which is good, just because we I'll put myself in the older person side of things. Um, you know, we didn't grow up with the internet. Like we had to be, I'm going to go look this up in the card catalog and then go find the book and then go, you know, we're accustomed to the process of researching being a little laborious. However, in the same vein, um, we won't necessarily always see the new way to try it or the faster way to try it, or we'll be like, we're going to try this tried and true and see it through. So, and, but in the same vein, yes, I do notice that sometimes um, younger generation, I'll put my daughter in that same thing. She's not a workforce age yet. Well, small jobs, but not big jobs. Um, it is harder to stay the course. I get that, but I think that I'd rather work with a young, eager person who's going to be looking at things from like 180 degrees than someone sort of set in their ways. My early, uh, my early retail years were set in in Pittsburgh, so I'm a Steelers fan, but I'm not diehard, so don't ask me any stats or anything. I'm gonna go back. I'm gonna go back was, to this now. <laughs> I was always wondering, like, did he find out about this, and that's why he's got the Beagles on. <laughs> So, but I had a, a woman who I came into, I was managing her. I was probably 24. Um, she was probably 70. And so it was an interesting experience, you know, to try to manage at that age. And she would say to me, well, we tried that. It didn't work. And so I, you know, thought about it. I'm like, how do I, how do I get to her? And I finally just said to her, Jean, can we, can we start a new rule? And she's like, yeah. And I said, if when you tried it, I was not alive, can we try it again? And she thankfully was like, yeah, 
I'm okay with that. And even just teaching her some of the words that were going to make her less defensive. Like, you know, you can tell me you tried it before. How about when we tried that before? This is what we learned as opposed to it didn't work. Right. And she, and we, we got to that, but that's the difficulty with managing older. So I, you know, I've managed truly people in their seventies. I've managed all through straight through. I am kind of um, more inclined to younger people because I love learning. And I know when I work with younger people, I, I tend to, I tend to learn things I do with older people as well, but there's more of a vast knowledge that I can gain from them just in little tidbits. I think the key thing is creating a passion in them for what it looks like at the end. We just have to be better leaders, not managers, leaders. When we're working with that younger crowd, we have to say, this is what we're working towards. This is how we want to get there. Let's try this for this amount of time. It's very much like parenting. It really is. I'm going to do this for this amount of time. And if it doesn't work, then we'll revisit it. But if you're just like, hey, just go this course and, you know, you know dig, dig yourself this hole and we'll talk about it after you're 30 feet deep. It's not appealing in my in my experience to that generation. You have to build the vision instead. Tell them how long you're going to stay the course. Give them a couple, you know, things along the line that can be small wins, and then at the end of it, you can you can come out together with a probably better process than you would have ever had if you have less creative people who are willing to try new things. That's my experience. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. I like I like that. Um, so obviously, in some capacity, you're consulting MSPs, right, in one form or another. Mm -hmm. um why would somebody pick up the phone if they still do that i still do i was just talking about this earlier why would they contact you what would they get your help with i think the biggest thing that people know me for is you know training i often oftentimes people pick up the phone and be like melissa i need help with autotask not what i'm doing <laughs> I actually didn't touch the software on a day-to-day -day basis for probably four or five years before I left was you know, kind of tangential running the online community. Um, still believe it at 150%, just not the person for that. If they're saying, I can't seem to peg down this process, or I need this growth rate and I don't know how I'm going to get there, or I'm starting this new thing with my people and I'm not really sure how it's happening, or we've just grown and our communication is breaking down. How do we go better with this? Or, you know, there's a lot of different things that we can map out. Those are all things to me that start at the core of customer experience. And most MSPs are going to, most people, are going to throw customer experience and customer service as synonymous words. And that is a huge, there's a huge, huge difference. And so that's my first thing I'm really trying to do is educate the MSP community as to what is customer experience. It starts way earlier than the sale. It starts even earlier than somebody actually considers themselves a prospect or you consider them a prospect. It starts with your online experience. It starts with your storefront. It starts with who you are, who your team is when they're out driving your company car. All those things are customer. Somebody's building what they think of you. And that is customer experience. Whether they're paying you or not, we just call it all customer experience. And it goes the whole way to what does it look like when you have to offboard someone? What does it look like to be a past customer of yours? So, so my real passion about that is usually when people bring me the challenges, underneath it all, we can we can find where there's an issue. I presented recently at CompTIA um, for MSP Ignite, and we talked about once you get your KPIs, once you get your goals, then breaking those down and trying to understand where are the touch points in those. Touch points are every single time a customer, a prospect, a, not even prospect, a cold lead interacts with you, that's a touch point. 
And what do those touch points look like? And how are your KPIs potentially going to affect those touch points? Because I was amazed over my years, and you know, Autotask is no different than any other company, of things that would change. And I'd say, why didn't someone think about the customer on that one? Right? Like, why did we not catch this just a tiny bit earlier than release day? Right? And, and so I, I got myself thrown into a lot more initiatives that way because like, well, if you're going to, if you're going to insist, then you better come in here and tell us, you know, what they're probably going to think. But I was so deeply ingrained with our customers, with the MSPs. I knew their business probably because I knew business better than a new technology when I started, right? Like I'm not a person who's ever networked. I will own that, right? I will never be the person that's going to tell you, here's how you could do that better. But at the core of what everybody's trying to do is be a profitable business. And, you know, my undergraduate degree was, you know, business administration. My MBA from UAlbany was focused on that exact thing. So that's kind of probably where I connected more quickly with MSPs was because I noticed them as brilliant humans who didn't business well, if we can just make that a verb, right? That and That's fair. I just had a conversation with an MSP. Uh, There's an event in New Jersey over the weekend called TechCon Unplugged. It was, by the way, thanks for Paco and Rick for putting that on every year. Um, I, I was talking to the MSP business owner. I was like, you're in business to make money, right? Like when it's all said and done, boil it down to its reality. You're in business to generate profit and revenue for your company. Uh, you know what? Yeah, you know, like how do you accomplish that? Now, a lot of people have different opinions, but like if you're not, if that's not the beginning, then are we in the I'm donating my time business? Are we in the sometimes I like to play with things that have blinking lights on it business? Like, you know, sometimes I like to get on airplanes and go to events and drink some 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 uh, beverages business. Like, what 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 business are we in? And so I was challenging this guy because I was like, what could you do in the next 12 months to generate 600, 700, $800,000 in, in net new reoccurring revenue? And um, he was like, well, maybe this, maybe that. And I was like, okay. I was like, if I'm staring at something right in front of you, the answer shouldn't be, well, I don't do that. The answer should be, well, let me see if that's an option for me, right? But I digress. A hundred percent. I had a conversation recently with someone when I said, you know, what are your goals? And they're like, well, we're all in this to make money, right? To me, I'd even challenge you that you need to go further than that. How are you driving a business that other people actually require to get paid from if you don't have some clear cut goals? I'm that astonishes me because I have conversations. Most of the people I work with are not, you know, five-year entrepreneurs, they're 15 or 20, because I've known them from the beginning of my career. And so they've been doing this thing, which kudos, I'm amazed at it. It's, it's some people just inherently do it well. Um, but those people who do it well are the people that I find are like, hey, this is what I want to grow my business by in this year. And the, the people who are employing six people and saying to me, well, we just want to do business well. I'm like, I, I don't feel like I want to talk to your employees because that might slip out that that's your only goal. <laughs> Like you, how do you decide if you're going to do A or B? How do you decide if you're going this, you know, if there's just no end goal um, that, and I guess that's, that's part of what I want to get people to. And then once, you know, but I find the people that work best with me really are people who, who understand where their challenges are, right? They're, they're going to come and say, this is not something I'm great at. You, can you, cause I definitely have enjoyed being a, a communicator all through my life. I'm, as you can tell, not short on words, 
love, and I love training people. I was talking to Jen beforehand when we were discussing, I love learning and I love training. Like that is the heart of what I want to do. So when people say, you know, my engineer is just not great at communicating, let me talk with them. Let's, I can give them some phrases. Like I'm not going to magically turn someone around, but I, there are phrases, there are things, there are triggers that you can give people that help them get better at what they're doing. Are they going to be a master communicator? No, but they don't really need to be. They need to be an okay communicator and a good technician or engineer. And that's definitely feasible for most people. So it's it's getting into those, those details, but really challenging people to say, what is your customer experience? And most people, not even just, I won't even throw it on the MSPs. I throw it across small businesses. They don't know. They well, don't know. Gonna, I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to actually drill down on that word customer experience, but before I let him go for too long, cause he's been raising his hand for a while here, I'm going to pop in Keith Nelson. Go ahead, Keith. How you doing, buddy? I know what Excellent. you prefer before you go too far. Yes. I saw the game the other day. Yes. I saw the shutout. Congratulations to you and your team, Dallas Cowboys, America's team. I got it. That I just wonder if, she, if when she was talking about touch points, if she was talking about the number of times the defensive line touched the Giants quarterback, that's what I was getting confused on. I mean, it seemed to be a lot. I, I, I saw it. It's one game. And, and one could argue, and I'm sure I'm not the only one out there, find any platform you want. Yeah, you know, like the first week, two, three of the NFL seasons, kind of preseason-ish, right? Like these people didn't practice in a real game scenario. You put them on national television when it counts, and then all of a sudden get some sloppy football. I digress. A win is a win. It counts in the win column. I saw it. Any questions about customer experience, though, Keith? Yeah, I think that when she's talking about this, I, you know, I think that one of the differences is we as MSPs focus on IT experience, number of tickets we closed, stuff like that. And the customers focused on business outcome touch. That's what they want to talk about. No one's interested in, oh, I closed 85 tickets or I purportedly blocked 75,000 attacks. What they want to know is how you improved your customer's profit and your customer's customer's experience. Yes. And that's when you move away from being a liability, a, a a cost center and becoming a real part of enhancing the business and breaking those artificial $500 per endpoint, you know, limitation. Or 1200 or 1800 or some number that you'll never see. I digress. Um, Melissa, we hear this all the time. I'm, I'm sure you have something, you know, you know, some thought on it, but bottom line is, you know, the working in your business, not on your business. And a lot of people just like, you know, it's the same thing. They're just trying to get, keep their head above water. You know, a lot of MSPs, as you know, started off, you know, in the trunk, in the basement, in the garage, came from internal IT maybe, or maybe just learned technology on their own. So they were good picking up the technicals, but from a big picture standpoint, you know, like people were forced into quarterly business reviews. People were forced into, you know, creating reports for their customers. People were forced into trying to get out of the, hey, something's broken, come fix it scenario. And I think, you know, there has been maturity in the industry, right? I think we've all seen that there's peer groups and accountability groups and just general, you know, learning from other people on what's best and what's not. But, uh, you know, back to your point, the communication part, there's always this misalignment with what the customer thinks they're buying 
and what the MSP is actually offering. And that usually shows up in a large way when something bad happens. A hundred percent. I do. So I do some small little YouTube videos. I give great kudos to you for keeping this thing going for like three plus years. Cause I, even just doing a video a week, it's like, wow, this is, this is a time consuming process. So, so kudos to you and your team, because it really does create value. And, and I respect that. Um, so, but I, I started a video series and I started to talk about managing customer expectation because that was really my job. I was, you know, I was the first product support rep. I also happened to be the first person promoted at Autotask into being the product support manager. And so I got the chance to be the person who took every escalation call. Right. And I had a phenomenal mentor in um, Adam Stewart. And he used to say to me, you know, just if you're going to bring me the problem, bring me a possible solution, right? How do you figure this out? So what I found was that, you know, customer expectations are set by customer experience. And that is the challenge that Keith, you kind of brought up too, is like, how do you get out of this? Well, you have to start from the very beginning and think about what do I look like? What do I, So I, I did a video in that series that talks about, yeah, what is my tech driving like? out there what what are what does it look like when my team is out to lunch these might all be scary questions but they're they're legit and you know what do i look like if somebody drives past my my storefront what does all those things are people are forming these expectations and what you might have is a phenomenal group of people a phenomenal team and and somebody's like at this high level and you're like where did they get these well because your online presence amazing but when did you bring in reality <laughs> right and so Customer experience mapping is all about figuring out where these touch points are, not anything to do with football, but you're certainly welcome to make the analogy. I'm sure we can make one before the end of this is over. Um, figure, and it actually we can because there's a huge payroll with the NFL, right? So sometimes your team is not even, right? And you have invested in, no one ever invests in special teams, but we're going to throw it out there. So you've invested in special teams. And so you have this phenomenal team, but then you have not gotten like offensive linemen in years. You've not, it's been years since you invest. Sometimes you've got to steal from one to give to the other. And so I am not a person who believes in, well, to be successful with customer experience, you, you got to give me a $500,000 budget. No. And the problem with customer experience is if you start to really look up the origins of it, it's more of what I talk about. It's been bastardized by the vendors, and I will say this, the software vendors that actually are building the software now, right? <laughs> so yes, yes, might be. I might be in trouble for that one, but I'll tell you. Uh, all right, let me pause you. Let me pause you. Let me yeah. pause you. I, I don't know. Customer experience to me just feel like it was a combination of account management and customer service kind of glued together into some new name. And like, that's what, like, again, because people's titles change all the time and you're like, well, what does this person actually do? And it's like, oh, I got to, I got to complain to this person now and my bill's broken or, you know, like, Hey, like my sport ticket's stuck for two months. What's going on? I need like, Hey, can you help me get this unjammed? But it's kind of starting to get the feeling from you that like, that's not the actual actual proper outcome of what customer experience is supposed to be. No, not yeah, at all. I'm going to disagree with you. I think she was right when she related to sports. Take okay. a look at, let's pick on the Dallas Cowboys, something I, do, I rarely do. They're the most valuable franchise, not because of their latest Super Bowl wins, but because of the customer experience that they mm -hmm. offer, right? You can still, or take the Lakers. How does the Lakers still sell out when they're a mediocre team? Hmm. It's the whole experience at the arena, 
the the excitement, you know, the the whole nine yards. I I think that's a, an excellent alignment. It's it's we're so often talking about things the customer goes, I don't care. I really don't care what you're talking about. And I'm not. You look at the way a lot of people present their QBRs, and they then you hear the stop. No one. They always get my QBR appointment because you're boring. You're you're actually talking about things that they don't care. What he wants to know is how are you going to make my business more profitable, more efficient, more effective, or or increase my customer experience? We've talked about this, George. When when I deal with hospitality companies, I don't talk about how many tickets I close. I talk about what was the wait time at your front desk? Because that's technology, right? If if you're going to start us, you travel a ton, George. We, we were at one hotel and you said something about you uh, screw up at the desk or screw up at the flights, right? And so you're going, that's technology being delivered, correctly or incorrectly. I mean, so let me rewind then, because I guess the company size is going to change which direction this comes from. If you're a small MSP, you started with the owner and then like they started hiring people over time, like a lot of companies in the space did, you know, granular, right? Um, customer experience starts with the founder or owner of the company, I guess, because like they're the ones zooming back saying, what do I want my my customers to feel when they sign up for my service? And what I want my customers to feel when they interact with my people? Like there's a, lot, a little bit of vision in there, right? It's not like textbook stuff. 100%. And so the, and the thing I want to make sure MSPs know, because it feels like, oh, great, Melissa, you're just giving me one more thing I got to figure out. It, it's that it, it, I would, I, my goal when I would work with somebody is to always talk about where can we maybe, the best analogy I've ever heard is, um, is really, it's a journey, right? So it's, it's the Audubon versus the dirt road. So now I live in rural, rural, rural Pennsylvania, where the cows outnumber the people and there I could see six Amish buggies and absolutely no mass transit on my way to take my daughter to school. So that is what we're talking about. So I know dirt roads really, really well. Well, if I set out on that dirt road experience, I'm gonna make sure I have the vehicle ready for a dirt road experience, right? I'm not gonna take a Porsche or I'm not gonna take my, you know, my, my Tesla, sorry, no Tesla, but I'm gonna take something like my Subaru that has some suspension that can handle some rough roads. Now, if somebody says I'm going to have an Audubon experience, yeah, I'm going to break out someone else's expensive sport car because I don't have one. And I'm going to get ready in that car for an Audubon experience. The problem is if I have an Audubon pre-sales experience, right? So my, my sales experience or pre-sales is Audubon. You've invested in it. You've hired great people. They're doing an amazing job at all the shows and out on the road. And then all of a sudden the service team is not quite what you expected. And now you're at a dirt road. So I just went from Audubon to dirt road. Everybody would say, well, Melissa, I can't afford to make everyone Audubon. Absolutely not. You got to stop investing in the Audubon. It might turn into a nice two-lane highway. But if I can bring this guy back up to a two-lane highway as well, now we've got a smooth experience. And the challenge with Audubon to Dirt Road is you lose trust. And there is nothing more important right now in an MSP to an MSP is the trust of their customers. Think about it. If you're dating someone, even married to someone for decades, and all of a sudden they become a totally different person, what is the first thing that goes? You start to distrust them. What is going on? This is not what I expected from you. Pleasant surprises are different from completely different behavior. And that's what you have to think about when you're thinking about the customer experience is, and you're right, George, it does somewhat start with the owner. There's branding in it. There's vision. There's that kind of thing. But everybody wants to take experience and have marketing own it. 
they want to be like, well, it's the experience, have marketing on it. And all the experienced softwares are playing to the marketing team. You know, they'll be quick at it. They'll get the right brand out there. And even if you look at the definition of experience, you're often going to hear brand used in that, in that word. And I'm okay with that because brand goes well before the sale and it also goes well after the sale. So I'm okay with the name, but I'm not okay with the ownership. It really is everyone in the org. And what you're really trying to do is even out the experience so that it's a positive, not looking for raving fans, no offense to all those great books. I, I've read them, they're amazing. But for a small business, it's not always feasible. And I think sometimes when we think it's overwhelming, we throw our hands up and go, yeah, not today. But I well, want to- somehow Okay, let me let me lay, level this out a little bit just to be, yeah. throw a couple of knobs in there. But Small business, right? It's like, can I afford to take on this these new customers because I don't have enough techs in the back end to service them, right? right? Medium business, it's can I afford to, you know, acquire another company or can I afford to bring on this new business unit because we're starting from scratch and do I have enough resources and personnel and funds allocated to make that happen? And then like big business, it's hey, listen, you know, like we're doing something at scale. You know, can the billing systems be able to handle this without a huge tsunami of complaints coming in because now everybody's bill screwed up and there has to be all these corrections and refunds. And, you know, like this happens at multiple layers. My big concern is like working backwards from successful, right? Because I, I always like to like, hey, here's the outcome, right? All right, let's figure out what it takes to get there. That's how I'm wired. But like that story, that journey looks way different depending on your size. Be scared. Be scared. That's I told you before. History. We picked up Boeing three months in business without even being incorporated yet, and two employees. What I did do luck? was there some luck in there? No, I tell you, it was no luck. I read a book on lean manufacturing because on the RFP they posted, that's what they talked about. And so I didn't give them an IT bid. I gave him a bid on enhancing the lean manufacturing process on the shop floor. I didn't talk about workstations and servers. And I talked about, you know, uh, cone um, assembly stations. What is that? That's a Dell computer. But that's their terminology. That's their, the rest of it falls in place. You know, we call Dell. Can you partner with us? And the rest of it falls in place. You spoke their language, Keith, which is a really key element of things, right? And I ask, you know, MSPs, how many of them have a Google News Alert set up on the markets they're targeting, right? So that you can start to understand what is the language of these people. That That's one of the things that um, became very clear for me when I started with Autotask was that I could speak a language that MSPs needed to understand. And I was more than willing to break it down. You know, more than willing to be patient with it. And they taught me, that's what I loved about it, was I learned so much from the MSPs about technology and things like that. And, and just about, you know, being an entrepreneur, probably would have never done this if I hadn't worked so closely with so many amazing people who were doing this very well. Uh, but you have to learn the language and it is feasible to teach your team some of that language. You just have to be, uh, George, you made a good point earlier, I want to revisit. And, and that was the point of, you know, communication and you kind of were tying on to my point of, you know, like your tech that can't, how do you communicate? How do you get people to do how? Part of it is not being afraid to take a chance on somebody who may not have a huge technology background but 
has done some really good things in communication and connection and customer experience or customer service is much more likely to find. One of those things I used to find when we would um, when we would go to hire product support reps in the early days of Autotask, I would always say and look for people who had done banking or I also did obviously would always look for like retail management. But the mm -hmm. reason for banking was that if something went really wrong, something went really south with Autotask, what it could mean was that somebody couldn't get their invoices out the door, right? So they called us in a fear of money. It wasn't, hey, the software isn't working. It's, I can't get revenue out and therefore I can't pay my team. And I used to always train people on that when I was training our product support team is that they're not calling you with a software problem. They're calling with a business problem that the software is causing. And chances are, if they're really angry, it's because it involves money because it's kind of important to most people. Um, and so that's why I would say to MSPs, like broaden your focus of who you're hiring, because chances are you could hire a less, you know, a less experienced tech or even even that first person that you hire to be your, you know, your dispatch person. Maybe you're looking at a dispatch person and you're like, who do I hire for that? Well, you hire someone who has 75 tabs open on their computer. You hire someone who has dealt with, you know, difficult personalities. You hire, do they need to have a tech background? That is going to be a plus. But I think sometimes you go into it with, well, we're a technology provider, so we need to get tech people. And you don't, when it's not a technical role, you have to be really focused on not getting tech people because that diversity is going to help you in more way than just the way it helps, you know, the interaction that person's going to have with your customer. I yeah. think you'll also be amazed that when you show interest in your company's business, your customer's business, how much they'll help you learn it. Mm -hmm. The, the, um, Dispatch ports, when I said, we're, they said, here's a class at Long Beach Community College on um, the supply chain. Four-week class, I learned their lingo, I learned it all. That was in 1999, it's been pretty profitable for us. Small investment, and it was a matter of going in there and saying, you guys do amazing things, tell me about it. Instead of saying, I'm amazing, I'll tell you about me. Right, right. Um yeah, it's definitely is is 100% about that. And I, and I think, um, you know, the thing I love is that it's small little incremental change you can make that you see huge positive differences in, especially we're sort of in that environment where um, when people really do feel seen, especially in the last probably four or five years, that has become so clear that people do not see, feel seen or heard. And we don't work with businesses, we work with people who work in businesses. And so that still translates to your customers, to being you know, felt and seen. And, and I know there are people out there like, I'm not gonna have touchy-feely texts, Melissa. Trust me, I get that. Like I was on the phone with your text for eight, nearly 18 years, right? I understand that. But there are some little things that when somebody goes on site, you can teach them to do that are going to be hugely beneficial. And you can be very transparent about it. That person can be transparent about it. Um, there's just, you know, little coaching that you can do that makes people feel a lot more comfortable interacting with people, um, little cues you can, you can watch for and, and just, you know, when your tech leaves a site, do they just walk out the door or do they check in with their point of contact and say, hey, I need to go to the next meeting or the next appointment. If you have additional things, please know you can email us at whatever. How much of a difference, that's, that's what we would call a last touch 
in the touch point process when you map it. Um, that's a last touch, right? What is your last touch? At Starbucks, their last touch is to hand you a lovely crafted beverage by calling your name out, right? That's a nice last touch. That, you know, Starbucks is not related to you, but that's the kind of thing that you want to think about. What is our last touch when we go on site? What is our last touch when we wrap up a phone call? What it, how do we leave a lasting impression with people? Because that is really important. A lasting good impression or a lasting bad impression? Right, exactly. <laughs> T, yes, we want to be going for good. And I'll even say that's why I use the word positive as opposed to perfect. Um, because I think, you know, I've, I've lived over the last year and a half that uh, perfect is definitely the enemy of good. So don't, we're not looking for perfect here. We are not looking for perfect. Your, your customers will really settle for a consistently positive ex experience. And maybe then you work yourself up and financially you can start to be an absolute leader in the field, but get uh, rid of the inconsistency first. That's interesting. Cause like when, you know, when, you know, when a lot of people pitch their services to someone, they're like, well, I'm better than the next guy because, and then they start spewing out all these things. And it's like, are the, you know, to your, to your point just now, right. It's like, you know, maybe good is, is the, the actual target. Cause like we all saw, you know, for years, and I'm sure you've heard it. I'm going to say it for the billionth time, I feel like well, MSPs really suck at sales and marketing, but they're good at technical services and delivery of services. But you know, they tend to not be able to generate net new customers unless it's like a referral and somebody's like, you know, knocking on their door. I mean, but the comment there on the reverse is, well, I can be really good at sales and marketing and just be okay at service delivery and I'll be a much more profitable company. Doesn't comparing yourself, even saying you're better to other companies, make you more the same as them? All of a sudden it's like, you know, you're, buy you're not buying... If you were just looked at one car, a Ford Fiesta, whatever, and you didn't look at the other cars, you're going like, they're all the same. Now it's just about price. Isn't that what you're doing when you're saying, oh, my ABC widget is better than his ABC widget. And you're going, well, it's just a bunch of commodities. Yeah, and I don't think you ever want to compare on, on that side of things um, because you don't want to get into a battle on price. But uh, George, to speak to your point, I think that um, what, what I... A couple of weeks ago, I did a video that kind of probably um, was was one of those controversial things you could say. I basically said, I don't think MSPs should worry so much about sales and marketing until they get their customer experience straightened out. Because uh, in its very definition, an MSP is a subscription-based entity, right? So you get your revenue from a recurring process. And granted, if you are brand new, you need to get people. <laughs> That's all there's to it. But if you're an established MSP and you don't know how your customers experience you and you're just saying, well, we just need to sell more, we need to market, you're just going to throw people into something you don't know what it looks like, right? That's like getting married when you haven't figured yourself out. That's just wrong, right? It doesn't. So you need to understand what your experience looks like. And my experience with that has been is once you get that to a positive place, you are going to continue with those referrals, right? You are going to continue. Is it okay for someone to suck at sales and marketing if they're actually making enough money for their goals, 
you know, through being really good at what they do. Um, you know, should you be horrible at it? Probably not horrible, but I don't think it's the, I think we have it out of order in a lot of cases for MSPs uh, and probably for a lot of small businesses, period. But especially, I could only say it so much because of the subscription model, um, that, that if you're going to say recurring revenue is the way we're going to work, which is what that says, why are we not understanding the customer experience first? That's the same argument I made internally from Autotask. I would always say to people, like, got to get this right. We would advocate for releases that were completely about fixes because we're like, hey, these are the people that are, you know, you guys might have sold, you know, a way back then a $250 a month customer. We made them $250,000. We as the service team, right? And that's really what it is. That's what you're selling. They're selling one thing. And then ultimately your services team is making them the quarter of a million dollar customer that they become. That's how I've seen it and how I've seen it work. But I think, yeah, that's, Obviously, people who are pushing for sales and marketing coaching <laughs> would not love me no, for I that. Mean, I, I, so so kind of what I'm getting from you is you need to build the blueprint ahead of time so that when you start to send people down the road, you know, like it's already set properly so that, you know, they don't come back and say, what what is going on? Something's not right. Versus, hey, generate customers first and figure out what the journey looks like later and then effectively you're you're consuming the journey yeah at the same time they are and like you're rewriting things as you're going along but like i'm going to be honest i think a lot more people are doing door number 2 rather than door number 1 absolutely absolutely 100% and i think there's a point where you have to do that have i done that in my past year or my absolutely in in building and planning what i'm doing am i doing it you know bits and pieces and try 100%. But there's a point where that doesn't make sense anymore. So there's people that have been looking at this for maybe it's five years, seven years, 10 years. It depends on, I think, the maturity that you brought to the business to begin with. But I couldn't say an exact time where you pivot and you go, okay, I need to plan now, right? But there's a point in your business where maybe you've been at that same level and you can't understand why you can't get leveling up. I think that's when you have to start to say, okay, I need to be more strategic. It needs to be more than just haphazard working on the car while we're driving it kind of process. And that it's those, that's really where my ideal client sits is that person who's like, I am really thinking that I need to do something more. I'm not sure how I do it. I know some of the places it's broken, but I'm not hundred percent sure. I don't have everything documented. So I couldn't really tell you, but could we get to documenting this and understanding how we improve it to then make it scalable? Because a lot of the things you do in the early years of your business are not scalable, not even remotely, <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, so, I, I, I like I like the message. You know, me and Keith Nelson have joked many a time where, you know, some of the people in the messaging out there is sales fixes all, right? Winning solves all problems. But if you can't matriculate the business, then it doesn't matter, right? Like you're just going to end up either in a legal situation that's not comfortable and end up costing you more money anyway, or you'll never actually get the revenue to begin with because that person will never actually get to the point where they, you know, they're, they're willing to send you the funds to do whatever it is that you're going to do. So yeah. and if we tie it to customer experience, you're building a bunch of enemies out there that are on social media, that are going to events that are right. Like you're, yeah, you're not, you're not building, you're not building advocates when you're doing yeah. that. And by the way, I think for smaller companies like me, you know, you're going like you can't afford a salesperson and a customer service person. They're the same people. They have the same personality. 
I think they in my, in, for when you're starting small, for me, you know, it, like I, we've talked before, it's not about fixing your problem. The first call is I care. I care about what you're going through and I'm going to take care of it and you're important. That's the same personality I look for in the people I want to sell. That's just me. Maybe other people think different, but to me, they're the very same people. They can, and they are selling. Every time they help a customer, they're selling. Definitely true. Yeah, you have to give them a model that rewards that behavior because sales is not always rewarded for being caring. Um, but as long as your model's set to do that, I think it's great. I think it's great 100%. I think your first impression should always be caring. So, yeah. 100%. Melissa, where do people find out more information about like your company and how to contact you and like maybe see if you can help them with something? Sure. I have a wicked long um, company name. So I just took a domain that's FTFTAC. So the first letter of every every word there. Um, you can also just find me on LinkedIn and follow me. If you want to tune into the LinkedIn, that's where I do post the new video each week. So if you're looking for some of the tidbits there, um, that's probably the easiest way to, to follow along this journey. Awesome. Well, for somebody that's literally been most of your professional career on the vendor software side of MSP land, you surely have been able to you know, learn a lot of the things that a lot of the people at the smaller size probably never even thought about, right? So a little bit of scale definitely gives people perception and, uh, and a little bit of visibility, right, about what comes next. So I think that there's a lot of, uh, a lot of things that you can, you know, provide vision on that people probably didn't even think about. So that's pretty cool. Guys, this session, go ahead. go ahead. Just thanks for the opportunity. Appreciate no, it. Absolutely. This session was recorded. It was actually a pretty good one. Thank, and again, Keith, now Keith has his George giving him a congratulatory your Cowboys one on, on record. It's it's on video and podcasts. It'll be posted on msbinitiative.com under session shortly. So I'm sure he'll go back and rewind and cut that out, I'm sure. But that being said, um, Melissa, thanks for coming on. I'm, I'm sure we're going to try and get you, you know, kind of involved uh, a little bit down the road here, right? As we're, you know, continuing to build these out. And um I definitely think uh, we should talk to you maybe about one of the future MSP Community Minds events where we, we do workshops, right? We bring experts in to do workshops on a topic. You probably could could crush that. So I would uh, love it. stay tuned. We'll probably reach out to you on that. For everyone else, don't forget about MSPinitiative.com. The two block parties coming up, DattoCon and IT Nation. Of course, we do these sessions Tuesdays and Thursdays, one o'clock Eastern time, usually, unless I'm stuck in some weird place and can't get online. For everyone else, have a great rest of your week and we'll catch you on the next one. Bye guys.